0: Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series 2, Session 10, it's Thursday the 17th of September. So good morning and thank you for joining us as we continue our um, conversations for our mini-series entitled The Regional Roadmap to Reopening, and this is part two, Sustainability Versus Vigilance. And so this is the last session in our second cohort series for Project ECHO COVID-19. And um, we began this series as the second wave hit Victoria, and we went again into lockdown. We took a deep dive into residential aged care outbreak prevention and response, and then translated what we learned to the disability sector. We explored household and workplace transmission through our housing, crowding and caring theme, examining the role of primary care and contact tracing, interim advice, and messaging um, to our community. So we're going to wrap up the series this morning and we're going to take a two-week break, ready to start back again the week before schools go back in regional Victoria on the 8th of October. So um, welcome this morning and um, and enjoy a couple of weeks off. We'll be taking a, a – Project Echo team will be taking a few weeks off and we'll be preparing a, a series that dives into schools and schools reopening um, So this morning though, we're gonna take a look at the road ahead after some good news this week in regional Victoria, as we made a hop, skip and a jump through steps two into three. So what's changed about the way we work in primary care and what do we need to gear up for for key stages, uh, such as a return to school and increasing provision for face-to-face consultations to ensure continuing care. How do we progress towards a COVID normal and at the same time maintain a level of vigilance required if we are to jump quickly upon outbreaks uh, such as that that we learned about in Colac last week? How do we message the relaxing that is required to bring vulnerable members of our community back to primary care whilst continuing the message about being COVID safe? I'd like to introduce our agenda for this morning. Again, we're going to kick off with Health Pathways with Dr. Kate Graham, our GP editor, and then our Associate Professor Deb Freeman and Dr. Rachel Cowan will bring us infectious diseases updates. Uh, we're going to bring Dr. Lee Meakin, from GP, a GP from Ballarat and Bunning Yong Medical Centre, to come forward and talk a bit about her clinic and how they've been operating through these um, pandemic response times and also just to prevent a couple, present a couple of um, case vignettes that maybe thinks, um, helps us kind of get our head towards what we're going to be thinking about as schools start to reopen again. We're going to bring forward our Rapid Five um, to about 8.15, so please get your questions into the chat by 8.15, because at 8.20, we're going to invite um, Mick Struth, Senior Manager of Mental Health and AOD Westwick PHN to come on board and tell us about the Head to Help centres that are opening up have opened up this week in uh, Geelong and Ballarat Uh, so we'll look forward to an update there. Our learning outcomes to connect as a community of practice and consider our real world experiences so thanks for your participation in advance. I'd now like to um, hand over to Dr Kate Graham to bring us an update on Health Pathways. Thank you Kate.
1: Good morning everyone.
0: Um, I've got just a few updates this week for Health Pathways. Um,
1: So this week there's been an update to the infection control guidelines from DHHS. So we've um, changed a few things on there about the information for N95 masks. Um, Just to reflect the use in nursing home settings and at home residential and disability settings with patients with suspected or confirmed COVID-19. We've also updated the information in relation to the central number that you need to put call for patients um, if their results haven't been received after five days, and that's a general central number for all pathology services, um, although you can contact your own pathology provider. And that's on the clinical editor's note at the top of the initial pathway, and there's a real push for GP details to be added to all requests now. So hopefully, as GPs, we'll be getting CC'd into more results as well. Um, and definitely, as Bianca was saying, the child's child pathway is one to consider as things get back to a COVID normal and we've got information in the resources in the child assessment and management pathway about management of illnesses in schools and childcare and that's one to keep referring to because they're going to be the questions that we get um, from parents Um, We're also going to be um, putting information up on our mental health pages soon um, both in terms of our COVID mental health page and our standard referral pages about the new hubs that have opened for Head to Help Um, and we'll wait to
0: hear more from Mick on that a bit later. But that's all from me this morning. Thank Thank you. you Kate. Thank you. All right. I'd now like to hand over to Associate Professor Deb Friedman to bring us the COVID update. Thanks Deb.
2: Good morning, everybody. So, as uh, Bianca said, at midnight last night, we progressed to the third step and we were all out at restaurants dining at midnight. Um, It's nice to see you all there. Um, We're now in regional Victoria, we're at a 14 day average of 3.6 in terms of number of cases, which is excellent. There are no mystery cases and we, currently only have two active cases in Greater Geelong. Colac has slowed down significantly as we reach the end of the current outbreak. And currently there are 16 active cases, as many of them have already recovered. There's no real activity anywhere else in um, our region. And if we look at the last 14 days, we've had zero unlinked cases, which is a really important measurement for regional Victoria. Melbourne, obviously we know are a step behind the number of cases, approximately 40 per day. For them, their target at the stage that they're at is to be between 30 and 50 cases per day on average over 14 days. Currently, their number as of yesterday sat at 49.6. And as I mentioned before, we're at 3.6. So they're quite far behind where regional Victoria are. Within all of Victoria, 107 people in hospital, 11 in intensive care. The big projects going on currently at the sort of statewide level include a project called Cleaning Victoria, which is a sort of an overarching project to dictate cleaning strategies in the setting of COVID-19. There's also... um, The state's embarked on the respiratory protection program, which is gonna include things such as fit testing of N95 um, respirators and other controls to try and reduce infection. There's also gonna probably be some work being done in terms of advice about the ideal types of hospital ventilation to house patients with COVID-19. And the reason for this is that there was a lot of lessons learnt through some of the hospitals with their outbreaks, finding that the wards where they were housing patients probably didn't have the optimal ventilation. Um, There's gonna be a return to elective surgery and that's gonna happen very soon within um, regional Victoria as they begin to scale up. We had something brought in last week called daily attestations of health. you know, frankly, I think we could have attested to our health back in May or June, but that's, that's come in now, where you have to attest that you've got no symptoms and no contact with any confirmed cases. And then the other new project that's coming in is high risk testing of, um, sorry, testing of high risk healthcare workers, and that's going to include um, staff working in high risk areas. Um, I guess in in big news, they found um, viral fragments of SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater in Apollo Bay and subsequently opened up a pop-up clinic in response. I think we should just clarify there haven't been any cases in Apollo Bay and the finding of it in wastewater probably reflects so it's either a few people going to, like a few people who are from Melbourne or Colac, using the loo and so i don't think there's really any big news there so i guess the big question and the thing that everybody's asking is what's the risk to us currently and the big risk for regional victoria is the external threat of reintroduction Um, and so it's all about what are our links to external sources links through work to melbourne links to family in melbourne and links to friends So with that, there were some questions that got submitted, the first of which was, are we concerned about travel um, into regional Victoria over the holidays? And I think the answer is yes, very concerned. There will still be restrictions. So holidays actually start at the end of this week. There'll still be restrictions on Melbournians. So it's regional Victorians, and I specifically read the guideline this morning to make sure that I was clear on it. Regional Victorians can travel within regional Victoria. So I personally think that's safe. Yes, there will be a threat of reintroduction when when there's a full opening. Um, I'm hoping that that will be several... That will happen weeks after the school holidays. Um, The other question that was submitted was a question about eye protection. So uh, I guess the thing about eye protection, just a a couple of points to mention. Um, Acquisition of COVID-19 infection via the eye is theoretically possible because there's mucous membrane in the eyes. It is, however, very low risk, but it is is a potential risk. But it's gonna mostly be in the case of patients who are coughing, sneezing, or have aerosol generating behaviors. Um, What was added into the conventional use of PPE during our kind of very active phase was the use of eye protection in all face-to-face Um, clinical encounters and that still remains in the PPE guidance so therefore if the question is am I supposed to wear or is it recommended that I wear eye protection in general practice the answer would be yes because that's recommended in community services disability services aged care hospitals and it would be the same for general practice however if there's a problem personally for somebody and they find it uncomfortable I would caveat it by saying that the risk is extraordinarily low right now. And if you're already performing a clinical risk screen on patients um, and you don't wish to wear eye protection, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, And then the other question was, well, what if you've got patients that are coming from other areas to your general practice? So um, I'll just break down what was asked. So if you had someone coming from Colac, Look, I think the this current outbreak in Colac is petering out now. There's not been any unlinked cases in Colac. All of the people know if they've kind of had any links to the outbreak. So I wouldn't have any problem seeing somebody from Colac in my practice. Um, somebody from Tarnit or Wyndham, I would potentially still want to perform a more significant clinical risk screen. And I would have to kind of base my decision on how urgent I thought assessment of this patient was so I'd probably have to base it on whether or not it was thought to be specifically an urgent problem and then the last thing I wanted to say Gemma if you could just pop those slides up sorry Gemma Um, the point of this slide was just to show we we don't even appear on this slide because we're down the bottom and if you just move to the next slide please Gemma So this is just an indication of why suppression of COVID-19 is so very difficult. And really, hospitals, sorry, hospitals, countries that have had their first lockdown and then opened up everything, you can see the result in the UK, um, where they've got more than 120 cases per 100,000 population, which is very high. They've got thousands of cases a day. And Not much behind that are other parts of Europe. So suppression is incredibly difficult. The capacity of New South Wales to suppress is actually fairly unique if you look at it on a global scale. And the big reason for that is a lack of external reintroduction. So countries in Europe are not in that situation. And the reason is that you can easily cross borders. Without borders closed, that's allowed parts of Australia, so some states to basically near elimination, and for states like New South Wales to have effective um, and very impressive suppression. But it's because of a lack of external threats. So we just have to be aware of that. And Thank you very much. I'll um, hand over to Rachel. Thank you. Thanks, Deb,
0: Rachel. Thank you.
3: Um, Morning, everyone. Thanks for attending, and thanks, Deb. so from the sort of ballarat and greater grampian region we're actually doing really well we haven't had any new cases in the ballarat region i think for uh since the 23rd of august we did think that we had a new case last weekend in horsham but it turned out that that person had been in melbourne for four months uh, in hospital so unfortunately uh, they were attributed to us because it's at the uh cases are attributed to us according to their postcode that they actually live in so when i phoned her up um she was had been in melbourne for an extended period of time um, what we're doing sort of from a contact tracing group perspective is that now things have settled down our contact tracing group has uh as reached out to all the regional uh, CEOs in the regional hospitals uh, and we're looking to get people assigned so we can train people to monitor their own patients so we'll have a central hub of the contact tracing in Ballarat but a- around the regional areas we'll be getting trying to get people to do their own monitoring of their patients over time using our monitoring tools and monitoring scripts um, and then entering the data on our database um, which is then um, forwarded on to the Department of Health so I think there's about 14 or 15 people in the region they're actually looking to uh be trained up next week so that's a really positive thing so it makes us all a little bit more self-sufficient and I think it, there's a enormous benefit of actually getting people doing their own monitoring uh in their own region because they just understand their region um so I think that's a really positive thing and that's all I've got at the moment I think
0: thank you Rachel great So that concludes the panel presentation for this session. We'll bring you any other snippets that we can, but come along and join the discussion next week. Deb, I'm going to um, go up and come back to you because I know we're not doing our schools episode, but I think it's probably really... I want to kind of hear a bit more about your thoughts around this. You talked about schools are going to have to get smarter about the way they um, kind of run those spaces. Um, You know, we've got to, you know... You know, young person with a runny nose, how's everyone else going to feel about it? You know, schools are going to have to think about themselves as workplaces and, and, and we're still in a restricted setting. We're not in COVID normal even. Um, you know, how, what types of things will schools be doing to kind of create those safety measures that we're hearing about?
2: So I think it's going to be a combination of things. That, that, that slide that you showed that had those things about how to keep your business safe those were some sort of basic guidelines, a lot of which are applicable to schools. So I guess one of the things is, and I think some schools are already doing this. So rearranging the classroom so that everybody is forward facing so that at any one time you're facing somebody's back rather than being face to face. So it's kind of, it's exactly the way we went to school. If you all remember, we had our desks all facing the front of the teacher. Did you guys have that? The little wooden desk that you sat inside? Yep. Lift it up and put your lunch in maybe. That's what we had. Anyway, so, so I think they're going to, I think facing, facing the back of somebody is a good strategy. In terms of w- what I was saying to Bianca was stuff about getting smart. So the more interactions you have between, let's say, a class of 25 kids and other kids in the school, the more that you've got the potential to create spread. So for example, in primary school, it's very easy because usually the children are all together for all of their lessons. But in a lot of schools, they make kids move out of classes to, do a, to be with a different group to do PE or a different group to do music. You need to minimize the amount of mixing between groups and to try and separate people the reason for that is that we're still going to be in a situation when we go back to school that there could be a, a kid in class 2b that gets confirmed with covid how many classes are going to become close contacts and in reality it should only be the kids that are really having prolonged contact in the classroom so it would be good if they thought about how do you do recess and lunchtime it would be better if you kept kids in their same bubbles. So that's kind of my recommendation for the social interactions, spacing in classrooms, trying to kind of increase the space between people. Older kids can certainly wear masks. Very young children can't. What are the options for the child with the runny nose? Um, If they've been assessed, so one option, antihistamines, if it's hay fever, that kind of might be one thing. The second thing is, Is there a reason why the child couldn't be encouraged to wear a mask? That may add a measure of confidence for the remainder of the class. What you don't want is to lose the confidence of the teacher in the classroom. Um, That's just an option. The, the, The people who aren't supposed to, I mean, we've not, masks aren't mandated for kids under 12, but there's no reason that they can't wear them. It's children under two that can't wear them because they're a choking hazard. And that's in the new guidelines as well. Um, I don't know if that's helpful, but look, I guess the other thing is that some of the, you've probably all seen, sorry for the background noise, you've probably seen some of the perspect screens that are being used in certain businesses. There might be the applicability of that in some classrooms. perhaps on the sides of people and especially if you're facing somebody's back that might add some safety. If you look online at the Perspect screens you can get an idea of what I'm talking about but that's obviously an investment and that would you know that's going to require money and so I don't think that's going to be broadly that things that are going to be sort of taken on board broadly in schools but I think it's reducing mixing in all settings within the school both classroom and outside of classroom being the the best measure
3: yeah i agree i absolutely agree with deb it's all those things that we've actually been doing in the hospital environments as well in terms of making you know people that work on the covid ward stay on the covid ward and we're not sort of trying to get people to mix and uh and and those that are being put at risk in terms of exposure are are sort of almost cohorted off and so it's exactly the same principle i think from a sort of It is an incredibly difficult question because it's you know, is it COVID, is it not COVID? I think if it, a lot of it's going to be around, you know, is it an acute illness? And that's certainly um, what's in the guidelines, you know, is it an acute difference? So a chronic runny nose, you know, initially testing right up the front would be very helpful to establish that it's not COVID, but if there's any remote changes after that, because I, I mean, I wander around with a runny nose all the time, I change rooms and my nose runs, but I'm not going to get COVID tested every time um and so i think common sense is a really important thing and i i'm just reiterating what deb has said in terms of epidemiological link as well is there a chance that they could have mixed with someone else where they would have got it as well as far as sort of testing people that having exacerbations of copd um you would do that because that isn't a new acute onset of symptoms um but if it's like a chronicity around it and also the the hay fever is a really difficult thing because you know it it fluctuates in terms of being sick and being not sick and antihistamines um, I agree definitely help but I think right at the beginning I think it's important to really make sure that you're tested and if there's any remote change whatsoever to get retested
2: I just I guess I just wanted to respond to a couple of things that were in the chat before if that's okay Um, there was a question about the use of serology and somebody mentioned that serology on people has shown that a lot of people have had asymptomatic infection. That's not incredibly surprising, given that 20% of infections are asymptomatic throughout the course of their illness. And that especially when numbers were so much higher, you can imagine that there was more activity. In addition, earlier in the year, before there was um, quarantine after coming back from overseas, you can imagine there might've been people who came back with an illness that could have been um, COVID-19. What's the utility of that day today? I don't think there is. That doesn't give you a great deal of useful information, in my mind, in general practice. If there's a reason for you to know whether or not somebody had COVID-19 infection in August when you're sitting in October, I'm not really sure what it is because nobody gets a passport of immunity for COVID-19. So it's sometimes of academic interest and it's sometimes of interest if you've got an unclear illness and you really wanna know if that's what it was because they've just recovered. But kind of, so I don't think it's of day-to-day utility. Um, what were the other things in the chat to reply to? Sorry, Deb,
3: just question. adding to that as well, is that in terms of someone having an acute illness, um, we know that the infectivity of um, COVID is markedly decreased around day five to seven, um, and which is why we're that 10-day people with uh, who are actually positive stay in um, isolation for that period of time. Um, the thing being is that we know that... that the PCR is the best test for that. The thing is the serology takes a number of days to kind of kick off. And I think IGM starts around day five or six or seven, and then IgG um, is, uh, you know comes along after that. And the thing being is that, so that using that as a diagnostic tool is actually not helpful at all because you're not getting people in the where the acute illness really is. So it's, it's useful in that respect um in terms of you know have this has this person had it in in the past and been exposed in the past whether whether that train, translates to long term immunity is still really yet to to be seen um and you know the evidence it's it's way too early to actually definitively say whether we get long term protective immunity i suspect it's probably going to be a bit like influenza where we don't get complete immunity um, at all, and you can get flu again. So I suspect that this is going to be the same thing, uh, kind of, uh, same thing going again. And and it, there's even you know the jury's still out whether you get a more severe illness or a less severe illness as well. We're just in with secondary infection, so or a second infection or third infection. So it, I think it's just too early for us to tell any of that kind of stuff. I know that both Australian clinical labs and Dorovich um, have a serology uh, test available. Um, I'm not sure about cost and stuff like that. I don't, I haven't actually approached any of the labs or discussed that with them, Um, but we can certainly find out. But I suspect that I don't think it's going to be a charge to the patient. Deb, do you know?
2: My understanding is there is a charge to the patient, so it's not funded like PCR testing is. That's why you have to determine what the real utility of the test is and whether or not it's going to be helpful to the patient. I have done it on a few patients earlier in the year because it was important to know they had this really severe illness and we wanted to know if that's what it was because the whole family was sick. They were happy to pay for it, but uh, I don't know that it's got a great deal of day-to-day routine utility the real concern is, um, you know, this third wave, it is epidemiology where the problem is, but it's just really that was more that there's a big population with it. Do we have to start educating now on, on the TV to stop the third wave? And, you know, what what practically, because the community's not going to tolerate a, another lockdown, I wouldn't think, in Melbourne. So, you know, where, where, what, what can the messages be put out to Melbourne that are practical? Should people not come into their own homes? I mean, you're obviously going to see your family Do people need to wear masks in your own homes?
0: Deb, I'm messaging to prevent the third wave. What's your thoughts? It's going to be all about those administrative
2: controls, the keeping away from people, limiting the number of contacts that you have. I think that's going to be with us for a long time. So I'm hoping that we won't be necessarily wearing masks in the home now from yesterday we're allowed to have people over in our homes in regional victoria Um, there are going to be some people that take that to extremes aren't there there's going to be some people who are going to have crowds now we haven't got mystery cases in greater geelong but it, it just takes one person who has a contact with melbourne to set this chain, as you saw with the Colac outbreak. So it's very tenuous, isn't it? And as Paul, you very correctly say, people's capacity to withstand another lockdown is going to be, I would I would really question whether or not we would get compliance. Um, for some of us who are still able to work, we'd kind of, you know, it's really doesn't make that big a difference. Like we can't socialise, but we can work. But getting compliance from the community is going to be extraordinarily difficult. So the best, the best thing we could hope for would be to get to a position like Sydney, where you sort of manage to live a fairly normal day-to-day life with some restrictions, and then when there are clusters, having to lock down specific businesses, you know, people, It's a tough one, Paul, and you know what? You guys ask brilliant questions because I don't have answers for most of them.
3: I agree, I think that the key is getting us down to a a level where we're actually safe um, within the community before we actually do open up again. And the key is really going to be around turnaround times of testing and making sure that we jump on those cases that are positive and isolating all the close contacts as soon as we possibly can. If we can do that to stop that sort of second and third generation of spread, I think that that's the way that we're going to be able to manage and hopefully we won't get to the stage where which which is this which was in the second wave where we had um just an overwhelming amount of infection and so we didn't have the ability to actually jump on those cases and get those close contacts isolated as well um that things just sort of went off like a bushfire so i think if we have that capacity where we can jump on things as soon as we can i think the setting up the regional centers will definitely help that but uh, i think that's actually going to be the key is making sure that we get on top of the cases as soon as we know about them.
0: Thank you, Rachel. And I think that's a brilliant way to end our session called sustainability versus vigilance. This is sounding to me like maybe the intro into a podcast. So maybe over the next couple of weeks with Rachel and Deb, I might give you a call and we might podcast this because I know Deb and I did a podcast called controlled adaptation or something like that. And we talked about this as a strategy, you know, controlled suppression is what she described is happening in new south wales because there are no external threats that's the only way they can potentially manage that so really until we get our numbers right down and thing we are looking at thirty thousand people wanting to be repatriated you know this is going to be tricky the other name for controlled suppression is controlled adaptation but maybe this is act about adapting to be in quite significant controlled settings for a while so an interesting thought um thank you everyone and um we're going to throw up some slides now asks the question some people recovered from covid and post-covid complications um can you know we're talking about now the long covid are there any guidelines and tests so there is a long covid um health pathway in the pipeline and um i'm looking forward to maybe in our next series you know are we going to do long COVID in our regional one? Should we go uh, and create a statewide COVID, post-COVID? Is there enough cases for us that we've got an appetite to really spend time on the post-COVID or is that for another setting? This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project ECHO COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.